Hey everybody, welcome to Tech Trek. Today we have a real anthropologist joining us, Sam Grigat. Uh, we started talking and I just hit record and so we're going to be joining the conversation in Medias Race. I just want to also apologize for the quality of my microphone. Um, I used a new set of headphones with built-in microphone and it actually sounds like I'm calling from a 1920s telephone. Anyway, won't happen again. I hope you enjoy this conversation and share it and subscribe. Thanks everybody. I just wanted to say also with anthropology, the the real hazing is you go through, you take all of these classes, you, you manage your master's thesis somehow, uh, you, you fillet whoever you must to get the <laughs> thing signed, and uh, then you move on to your graduate studies, right. you do some coursework, comprehensive exams, oral defensive exams, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and you think, I've got it all down. I know <laughs> everything. Well, you I've can it all. <laughs> all of it out the window once you go into the field or to the bush, as they mm -hmm. like to say in uh, good old Mary yeah. England, you know, so that you had some street cred for I've been to the bush. Um, but um, <laughs> but it's, it's very exacting. It's very humbling. And you go away thinking, what am I? Yeah. Who am I yeah. to come in here and ask you people to tell me your, you know, how you feel during uh, menses, um, how you felt about breastfeeding for two years, um, how often do you have sex? Um, just very intimate questions, right. the nerve. Um, yeah. So exactly. building relationships, yeah. and yeah. It, uh, it's it's really an education for an anthropologist more than um, than anything else for a, for somebody who thinks I've got all the academic things under control here um, to go out there and realize. I know nothing until mm. I speak to these people. Well, yeah, well, welcome to Tech Trek. I, I started recording a little bit ago. Okay. <laughs> it's better if I don't know things. That's then I might not. Oh, you thought you were on a roll, and I was like, let's oh, grab some of this. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I um, yeah, welcome to Tech Trek. Thank you. Um, I'm one of your hosts, oh. Jeff. <laughs> The other host, Jenny. And we have nice, very special. Nice to meet you, Jeff, and to see you again, Jenny. Thank you so Thank much for you me. to Sam. She's our Sam Brigat. She's our my good friend. I'd like to say over we, we long distance, but have those are the best kind of friends sometimes. They, they um, are particularly given yeah. our our personalities. Yes. Yeah, and our current situation. But yeah, yeah. no. Uh, today we're going to talk about the Prime Directive, which isn't exactly a technology unless you consider policies mm -hmm. technology. And but um, it affects tech all the time. It does, too. and it has it, um, it has a lot of of interaction with tech. So mm -hmm. that's why I think it's a, a really great topic for us to talk about. And Sam, I'm so excited to talk about it 
with you, just given your your bent and and your and your pursuit uh, of of these different points of view and in perspective of learning about a culture and, and a group of people, and, and I, I'm really excited to to dive into this topic. And I'm excited to talk to you both too about this. Um, it, it really is something that's constantly on all our minds, right? The idea yeah. of prime directive or cultural relativism yeah. or how we're culture clashes, right? Uh, yeah, we're supposed absolutely. to be in 2021, the future, <laughs> the utopian Gene Roddenberry vision of a humanist future. And yet, we're here not we are. Quite we're, we're still several steps behind, I think, where that it would be um, realized yet. But I think, and that, yeah, I just to jump in on that real quick. Um, the this is kind of the root of my absolute grief and sorrow from 2016 until yeah. past November. Like that, that was that idea where we could <clears throat> unify and work together, and nobody's left behind. Um, that that was, I was it was as sure as the nose on my face, and then with the president's outgoing administration, it was like, I could just watch it being pulled apart. You know, science, no, mm. education, no, you know, poor people, sorry. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's just, uh, it's just, I, I feel, I try to get back to what I was thinking here, but it's the idea of um, gaining trust with another culture by slowly getting to know each other. You know, that's, um, you know, and, and you're an anthropologist, your shirt says so. But yeah, <laughs> let me show you. Yeah. I like to dress, dress the <laughs> um, Here's, I don't know if you can read this or not. Tell me if I'm squatting down enough. Anthropology, you don't know us. Oh, the science that deals with the origins, physical and cultural development, biological characteristics and social customs and beliefs in humankind. Awesome. So if you don't, if you don't know us, you don't but know we, us, but we know you. <laughs> now, now that's kind of a wild boast and a bit presumptuous. Yeah. That last yeah. sentence, you don't know us, but we know you. What yeah. a hell of a statement. Um, but like I'm really a... from an advanced planet and you you small people, um, I'm studying you under my Petri, you know, under my. Well, my it sounds so like, weird. it sounds like something like, so I, I had to write, um, I'm sure everyone has, right? Um, uh, you know, like uh, a research paper in seventh grade, or yeah. this, I think this was the eighth grade one that I did. Yeah. Because I remember it was seventh grade, I did Douglas MacArthur, which was interesting. Um, it's heavy for a seventh grader. <laughs> given the turn of events, I, I probably should should go back and, and, you know, revise some of the things that I wrote in that. Um, but my eighth grade one, I did. Um, a whole a whole study on the Mariana Trench. I was just fascinated by diving as far down below the surface of of the ocean, um, beyond where we could normally measure things, and like what was there, and, and how many people find it. You know, like because exploration's always been big for me. Um, I'm, I kind of I just want to peel back layers and keep keep digging. What do you do right now? I'm a product owner. Um, for a software company that we we are mainly um, I, I ask a lot of questions. <laughs> that's, okay. what, that's what my yeah, job. Questions is. are good. Yeah. Yeah, I, we uh, that's my role too, and we it, just interviewing techniques and and also part of user experience is sort of getting in their space and learning what their language is and using their yeah. words to help them 
Okay. Um, and that kind of, so there's a, Probably a little so you, there, there's another overlap on. with uh, anthropology there, the corporate culture and, yeah. and understanding all yeah. of those. It's, it's a lot of what you were talking about earlier too, Sam, about it, you know, the presumptuousness of trying to show up with your questions and think that that's how you make your understanding too, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of it, it, it's not transactional. It's very relational. Yeah. It's very yeah. long-term. It is, it is a commitment to it. It's not a I'm going to ask this question and, and walk out of there with my knowledge in my little, you know, bag of yeah. knowledge that I'm going to walk out. <laughs> and be so, right. You, and be right about it too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I, I think that's why so many people in any given corporation at an upper tier level, uh, upper leadership, those who aren't in the trenches really have a, a disconnect, right? Yeah. They don't yeah. have a common language of distress or yeah. even a common lexicon, except if you're talking about bottom line numbers because human beings are involved and yep. with, yeah. with all yeah. the- that. So I, I, I've, always been, I've always been interested in exploration. So I did the study on, on the Mariana Trench. Cool. And like, how, like, what is, what is it like to even, to even start your, your journey down there? And so you go through these different layers of the ocean where there's different light levels to the point where there's no light at all. It's all completely black and there, and you still have thousands of feet to go before yeah. you get to the bottom. Yeah. And that's where the Mariana trench is. It's literally the bottom of the Pacific ocean. And I remember signing like my conclusion paragraph of, with your shirt, you know, you don't know us, but we know you. And I, I said something like, you know, as a true eighth grader in, in middle school education, <laughs> like, and we want to wish, you know, future explorers, good luck as they continue their <laughs> travels as we've, you know, documented, you know, like all this kind of stuff. <laughs> like, how to write a conclusion sentence, you know, one <laughs> Put it in, put a top note in there and, and, and you get that a plus, exactly. the plus. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah but that is a fascinating you must love the movie a bit the abyss i do um, i do <laughs> um I, I think that's one of the great things um a formal education is not the end-all be-all it's afterward you know after we jump through all those hoop, hoops mm. then we can find things out and ask more questions and and no matter what we're doing for a living for the cash we can we can explore all of those topics and yep. you know delve into them but that's what was most exciting me to me about leaving academia all right now sure. i can actually look at things <laughs> actually you can actually do stuff them. yeah well, so cool. the prime directive, um, to get us going on the topic, um, yeah. I thought I would just take us through a couple of the notes that I had and, and, and kind of just have this be more discussion at the moment, Sam, until you um, wanted to take some, some lead on some stuff as well. So okay. um, Jenny, you can, you can jump in whenever you feel like it as well. Permission to speak freely, granted. So. <laughs> Permission to get a word in edgewise. <laughs> Granted. <laughs> <laughs> Only right. when I say so, though. <laughs> okay. Aye, aye, Kathleen. Sam, we also, out, we also find out that we laugh a lot during this podcast. So. Good. Laughter is essential. <laughs> I'm thinking booze is essential, but y'all make me feel really comfortable, so I'm, I'm good. <laughs> so the first hey, thing is uh, the prime directive is actually a Starfleet general order. 
so in the in the in the universe of star trek there's the federation which is like the governing body um it's the bigger construct and then starfleet is the military arm of the of the larger construct in there Oh, and so, science and discovery kind and of science and, and exploration and everything it's it's a full breadth of disciplines in there as well which includes anthropology and cultural studies and, and different things too which is, i find fascinating in there um the prime directive is in fact a starfleet order so it's not a federation thing necessarily okay it, it applies to the starfleet officers um okay. So that was one of the things that I found as I was doing my notes and, and reading for our topic today was as, as a member planet of the Federation, mm -hmm. if you're a, a civilian, the prime directive didn't apply to you. Okay. It only applied to you if you were an officer in Starfleet. Okay. I didn't know that. Okay. I, but, I didn't know that. I, I thought, okay. Okay. So I, I find that really interesting that, um, it is it's so strictly held too, to yeah just the the starfleet branch of yeah. the federation um okay well i mean to be fair they're the only ones really going out to, with the potential to meet a planet that maybe hasn't connected to the federation in the past so they're going to have a lot more probability of, of meeting those types of folks right so, yeah uh, a question i have regarding that um you know first contact sort of thing and the prime directive is um, my understanding is if the, if the culture they come into contact with has met a certain threshold of technological advancement, yeah, um, then yeah. that's kind of null and void. But if they haven't yet reached that level of technological advancement, then the prime directive is in play. Is that fully, fully in play? Yeah, yeah. yeah that, the technical benchmark is warp travel, right? Okay. Like, yeah. so they, if they don't have warp, they can't leave their star system. So they are, you know, kind of like those, they're, they're young yet, you know, let them find their own way. Okay. Because uh, you could drastically change someone's culture if they didn't meet this minimum. I, you know. Yeah. Like, I think in one of the notes that I, that I read was trying to figure out the impact that discovering that you could travel faster than the speed of light would have on a culture that doesn't know how to do that yet yeah yeah, yeah absolutely uh, <laughs> <Corruption>. <laughs> world upside down yeah yeah like literally because you can bend light when you travel at warp speed so, so there must be yeah. over 700 hours of, of viewing and episodes and i don't know the numbers but is there a case ever where they actually adhere to the prime directive <laughs> because I have not yes. seen an episode where I think they do. Um, every episode that doesn't deal with the prime directive, they're following yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. So it's, <laughs> I think it's okay. when they, you know traveling at the speed of a you know pro plot. I mean that's sort of <laughs> assume like they're behaving themselves unless we're watching them. Right. Um, yeah. That's kind of I think that's the case, Justin. It is, Jenny, and I, and I think that is um, that's part of part of that that ethos with it being applied to the Starfleet officers as well is mm -hmm. studying like studying that conflict of adhering to the Prime Directive at all times or 
when is it okay to break it? Right. Um, that, that's a big question I have, and that's why I find the series so anthropological as well. I'm, I'm probably um, more familiar with the next generation than than classic um, and Voyager. <laughs> the next generation is like it's it's the it's the I think the best interpretation of it. The original series gave us gave us the universe, you know. Yeah. Um, and is named after my grandpa, so you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pray said. Star Trek royalty over here. <laughs> really, I think there should be a peerage associated with that. Yeah, I, but I, there's that struggle to understand when, when it, when do you bend it or break it? Well, and. You know, the, the, the fact that it's called the prime directive and it's a non-interference policy, yeah. it's like, these are the way we do things, you know, and mm. uh, if you break it, you're going to get court-martialed or something like that. Uh, you're going to have to defend it, you know? And mm. so I think that's yeah. why what's really fascinating is like the, the, the balance of like their, maybe the, their peril versus, you know, the need to stay hidden. Mm -hmm. Those are always really interesting conversations that the crew has, especially on Next Generation. They'll sit down in the meet, ready room, meeting room, whatever that is. Um, Jeff knows the name of it. Uh, but they, you know, they all put in there, you know, this is why we should or should not break the prime directive. And the observation so, <laughs> Is it? Okay, yeah. I'm like, do they have one now? Let's see. Wait, the observation lounge? Yep. Okay. I didn't know. That. Okay. Yeah, because it had it had transparent windows. Yeah, it was like the whole wall were all posted, wow. uh, so you couldn't see that there were windows from the outside, but the the whole wall was windows. Okay, so but like, lounge makes me think of I don't know. Yeah, well, it sounds it sounds um like airportish too. It does. <laughs> the lounge. There will be a low level. Form Complimentary of drink service. Yeah, and... <laughs> uh, you know, Wi-Fi. <laughs> Wi-Fi, free Wi-Fi. Free Wi-Fi. Showers off to the side for the weary travelers. <laughs> oh. The quandary Jenny um, just mentioned, you know, when to interfere, when shouldn't we, what about our own ethnocentric baggage and all that. Um, it relates so specifically to anthropology in, in mm -hmm. a way because um, the cornerstone for the longest time was cultural relativism, um, mm -hmm. not judging other cultures or societies by our own societies. And, and in fact, um, you know, then there's this whole other realm of human rights and human rights abuses, right? When does one step in? Um, yeah. Is there such a thing as moral absolutism? And if so, who gets claim over that? Who, right? who gets to decide what is, what is, uh, uh, a moral and, and 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 a right way of, of dealing with with people within a, a given society and um, so cultural relativism has taken a big hit and I, I don't know in the show if the prime directive is constantly critiqued and reevaluated as well as mm, I it actually know. it was a living directive um, it was so there's some interesting history I'll take us through it a little bit um, and actually Jenny before I take us through the history History. I want to take you, I want to take us to, I think, one of your other Funky favorites. Funky Town? Yes. Funky Town? We're going to go to Funky Town, and then we're going to go to <laughs> a quote from the show. 
It's already Funky Town. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, (laughs) so the quote that I have is from a series that I, okay, I've had a hard time wrapping my head around because it has Scott Bakula as. Oh, Enterprise. So Enterprise is the name of the series. Okay. Um, I've not delved in there, but I'm curious. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think the hardest part that I've had with the series was the theme song so far. So that's good. Can you sing so it? It's a big obstacle for me for getting it's into been the show. a long time. <laughs> you said this to me. That's right. Play. Yes. Yeah. It hasn't grown on you at all. It hasn't. Um I <laughs> you gotta sing it with your family. I mean that's I guess what, maybe like, that's what it is. Yeah. First you yeah, you're I'll doing it make fun of it and then it's like it becomes a thing. Like I'll, I'll try that next time and, and see what obstacles I'm able to overcome with it. I'm open-minded. I'm just, yeah, uh, it's a little cringy at times for me. So the quote, it's definitely that. The quote is from the captain on on that show, Captain Archer. He said, someday, someday my people are going to come up with some sort of doctrine, something that tells us what we can and can't do out here, should and shouldn't do. But until somebody tells me that they've drafted that, I'm going to have to remind myself every day that we didn't come out here to play God. Yeah. Okay. Um, that kind of, you know, brings to the fore the idea that you, you can't have anarchy. Okay. Yeah. Anarchy really yeah. doesn't work. So you need some sort of framework that works. Some yeah. sort of structure. There has to be a uh, structure, some type. Um, and that enough people, a majority within that society can subscribe to. Mm-hmm. say i'm i'm okay with that um what i i wrote down a thing wait where is it uh prime directive i wanted to do some homework um I tried to tell her too. where's that um Again, Jenny ah, here we go. Picard says it. Okay. Ah, Picard. Ah, um, Picard. <laughs> there can be no justice as long as laws are absolute. So you've got the idea of a structure, mm. a cadre, mm-hmm. uh, a framework for how a society works, mm. and usually law and order must must be a part of that framework, right? And mm. yet, even laws can't submit to that idea of absolutism yeah right um and and yet in this country justice is supposed to be blind we know otherwise right um there can be no justice as long as laws are absolute so Mm. a bit of bendiness flexibility not too much rigidity um and i think he's he's sort of referring to democracy there right yeah yeah Yeah. well and also the the idea that you know the 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 laws are written by people and people are fallible and you gotta leave room for like maybe they weren't really thinking when we got here um about this particular thing uh so to be able to use judgment to kind of say that doesn't work uh and imagine after they broke the prime directive that they would come back to the prime directive as a living document and say okay these are the exceptions you know mm-hmm. so that you could recognize that you know this that we found this worked in the past so we're gonna and it didn't do harm 
Because yeah, I think well, that's like the, where the you know, behind the prime directive is like do do no harm on like, those those people. So yeah, and that actually brings up a point that I wanted to to bring next to, to Sam to one of your one of your points earlier. Um, there were instances where it was recognized after the directive was originally drafted that they needed to allow for that interpretation and that that tweaking and that um, that constant evaluation of it. One of those was um, was actually handled in the original series, which I thought was interesting um, uh, to see it put into that you know 1960s. <laughs> <laughs> um, wagon train to the stars yeah. <laughs> ideal that the original yeah. series was which um, was you you were there was a permission to to break the prime directive if a civilization was at risk of being terminated right right um, so it wasn't a just a you know lifeless colorless document there if, had uh, be... if we go into the hypothetical, um, then maybe Star Trek in some incarnation has covered it. Um, so you interfere in, um, in say, a war that's going to lead to the annihilation of a great deal of the population. And there's mm -hmm. going to be uh, misery and disease and, and uh, loss. And, uh, and yet the future might hold a, a sort of phoenix rising from the ashes type scenario that can't <clears throat> can't be really foreseen. Um, right. So you might be stopping something at a point and yet ruining a transition or a revitalization even of a particular um, incarnation of that of that culture. Yeah, that actually brings another quote from Picard, Sam, since you brought that one earlier okay. here for you. Um, what about the, the quotable captain? The quotable captain. I mean, come on, he's he's fantastic. Um, the prime directive is not just a set of rules; it is a philosophy, and a very correct one. History has proven again and again that whenever mankind interferes with a less developed civilization, no matter how well intentioned that interference may be, the results are invariably disastrous. Disastrous. That's what he said at the time. Mm -hmm. I guess disastrous to the culture, maybe, maybe not people. Disastrous to the trajectory of the culture, possibly. Mm -hmm. See, trajectory, that's an interesting thing if I, if I hearken back to anthropology too. Um, we have a very dirty, ugly um, past, the discipline of anthropology, um, having um, naively dabbled in eugenics mm. and looking at uh, skull morphology to determine whether one is of a higher level order of intelligence or not. Um, looking at in particular England as the pinnacle of civilization. Looking at, uh, in the words of Edward B. Tyler and Franz Boas, uh, Franz Boas is the father of anthropology, um, as there being uh, not just um, cultural progression, but cultural evolution. And when you say something like cultural evolution in the way it was meant back then, that means you go from barbaric or savage or some sort of you know underdeveloped way, which is actually pretty sophisticated when you get into it, um, to whatever that, that British standard of, of being a gentleman, a lady, a sophisticated right. civilized being might be. 
Um, so that with that ethnocentrism, going and looking at a culture that is completely different, that may have sacrifice, may have different types of uh, gender roles, um, different attitudes toward outsiders and mm. those who deviate from, um, um, from a, a given type of behavior even within the group and, and may be ostracized for deviating from that behavior. Um, I think we have to be so careful with the idea of, of the word evolution, which is really at its, its heart, just arbitrary. Can you survive in a given environment? Do you have, you know, the genetic yeah. or adaptive ability or, or whatever? So it's not progress, evolution. And yet we apply it constantly to culture, even now. Um, we, we look at some parts of the world and, 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 and say that's third world or that's backwards or, um, and, uh, and look at things as that continuum where inevitably we, what Americans, the British, the Western world consider ourselves the pinnacle, you know, <laughs> the, the goal for that, for that thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think in the, going back to the word disastrous, the way, the way that I feel about it when I read that quote was I think back to some of the other things that we've talked about, Jenny, over the course of, of some of the topics that we've had. The, the Can you read the quote again? Yeah. I'm just yeah. going to say that. I'm so glad you did. Yeah. Uh, please. It's absolutely. The prime directive is not just a set of rules. It is a philosophy and a very correct one. History has proven again and again that whenever mankind interferes with a less developed civilization, no matter how well intentioned that interference may be, the results are invariably disastrous. Yeah. I disagree. I, I, that's okay. Me too. And that's okay. Um, I, and I, well, and I'm, think, I'm glad you know, with disagreement. <laughs> you think a little bit about, and that's why I asked, like, was it disastrous on the culture or the people? Because if you think about missionaries or Peace Corps or Doctors Without Borders or things like that, like, it, those don't seem... I mean, they're going to have an impact on the culture one way or the other. So you can't do anything yep. about that. But are they going to, you know, hinder them as people living, you know, like what's the disaster that you're referring to? Well, my, my thought was, um, and, and I could be wrong here, and, I, and I'm cool with being wrong because I learned yeah. from that. So <laughs> and I'm wrong a lot of the time. <laughs> you know that. But, but with my... Um, my perspective on that quote i was thinking about some of the the technology that we've talked about so far on the show yeah. and thinking about the fact that it is it's presented in the show the way that it's presented I see. and oh. could, could a culture uh a, maybe one that wasn't as developed as starfleet was at that point in time um come yeah. up with that technology differently Right. In a way well, that would have been more or yeah. less or, or, you know, baseline different, indifferent. Um, but, yeah. And when you remind, when I remembered it, recalled that this is an order that is on Star Trek, who has this massive uh, technological, technological um, leap on everybody, even Everyone. in the Federation, yeah. um, to be responsible about what going into an underdeveloped or you know not warp red not warp developed country and bring this stuff that you know people haven't gone through the struggles that it takes to get to warp then they don't have a certain amount of wisdom to go with right. it 
um, and, yeah. and bringing from the... Um, is the pinnacle, uh, you know, having the warp capability, um, is that the greatest achievement for humankind to reach some sort of, um, you know, technological plateau? Um, we have the idea of the noble savage, which mm. is also flawed um, yeah. within, you know, within the 20th century, latter half of the 20th century going in the idea of the noble savage. And yet there is, you know, 500 plus nations just in, in the North Americas, um, not to mention, you know, globally, um, there are some very um, enduring human qualities that, that surpass anything that, that technology might give For us. Sure. Perhaps technology has taken away from us. Um, mm. in, in well, some, why is that and, the thought? Yeah, and I don't think that warp technology is the pinnacle. I think it's the, it's the, a certain level. That it's a baseline. You, it's a base. It's it's like in order to enter a bobsled race at the Olympics, you have to have gone to a qualifying event, right? Right. So and, and um, have a bobsled. And have a bobsled <laughs> and a really good fashion, you know, some swagger and makeup. But the <laughs> other part of that is like the Olympics equal the federation in this. Like in order, you have to train a lot, you have to go through a lot, you have to learn a lot in order to get into the Olympics. Right. Um, and that's sort of, I feel like a metaphor for the entering the Federation. So it's the, the warp capability is not tentacle, but it is required in order to get on, if you want to go to the international or intergalactic stage in this case, mm -hmm. um, because if you, you know, if you can't run, however fast you have to run in order to be a guy that drives a bobsled, you know, you, you know, don't waste your time. <laughs> You know. there's, there's so, a couple other there's a couple other things too that I think um, we, we talked about the the warp threshold right right um, one of the other times where so I you know we, we talked about the balance of when do you break the, the prime directive um, and when when can't you break the prime directive so one of the interpretations also was if your interference if your breaking of the directive and the non-interference um, policy would benefit a faction on a planet more than it would benefit another faction. You're not allowed to break that prime directive. So I'm thinking back yeah. to the discussion of like two or maybe three factions are at war and we can't allow that, that planet to, to be annihilated. Right. So we're going to interfere, but does that does our interference mean that faction B suddenly gets prominence where they not they would not have had that if we go in and support faction B? But when uh, all right, I get that, I get that. But uh, remember those two words I used: um, synchronic and diachronic. So a snapshot yeah. or a process. Sure. So um, the ship lands. Yep. Uh, at a particular time civil wars happening, who are the bad guys and who are the good guys? Yeah. You might not be able to tell at first. Right. Say you landed on Earth. Uh, I don't know if I should even mention this one, um, but um, around May, uh, when we had a lot of, of turmoil, yeah. uh, a lot of racial turmoil, and you didn't really know coming from outside um, what was happening. You might see uh, stores burned. 
you might see people with some kinds of flags on one side and some kinds of flags, people hurling epithets. You don't know the story. You don't know the process that led to that. Um, you don't know um, how systemic um, uh, traits have have infiltrated and mm. and are being writ large and have come to their head and 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 caused this rift in a bigger bigger way. There's always been. Yeah but in a bigger way. Um, so in Star Trek terms, you arrive on a planet, how much history and process is being taken in before a decision is made to make the break the prime directive and say, I pick this side for civil war. It, or is the idea just stop the civil war and let's try a diplomatic channel to try to heal? Mm, yep. I think um, the, the overwhelming... Um, momentum I saw in 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 any of the series mm -hmm. was to try to find a diplomatic channel. Okay, mm -hmm. and that's I how you that, that's how you kind of dip your toe in. Yeah. Okay. I'm just gonna have one bite of interference. Yeah. One <laughs> you <more. know. laughs> Okay. Um, I think there are a couple of interesting ideas that um that are spinning around, and, I, and while we get on to another topic, I'm gonna let them marinate in my head for oh, minutes, i had something that i wanted to say but i can't please, remember then, um, do you remember now <laughs> okay <laughs> Wait, we, we were just talking about diplomacy versus yep. um picking a side in a war yeah. yeah um you know it i just it got to me to thinking that there's this sort of um air, territory where you're going to find these the flare-ups on the direct the prime directive happening and it's like when a society is getting close to being warp capable that i think like at least in next generation um they they would go in and sort of disguise themselves and live amongst them to yeah. study it i'm sure that the you know first they were in orbit invisibly searching their databases and, and you know learning about their culture and then transforming themselves and bringing them in to the culture to you know to similar to what what you were telling us about in turkey when you were there that you would put down the clipboard <laughs> don't bring the clipboard sit down um as one of them or try to be one of them um to learn to understand more about the sort of social aspect of the, all of that we have a term so, for that, by the way participant observation is you live among the community, you work among the community, you use their language, you eat their food, um, so you yeah. might understand where they're coming from. And so in Star Trek, they do have this this going on as well. Then. Yeah, except that it lacks the sort of upfront agreement for that society to let you live there. Um, as far as I could tell, they just were like, this is the time, this is a phase in a near warp capable society where we can go, um, this is terrible but go native you know they think that's probably not yeah. used anymore <laughs> uh but secretly you know, the no, yeah. what's that we most of us do end up whether we say it or not going native if you re read the private notebooks of the most eminent anthropologists the uh public consumption uh ethnographies are going to look very different from the private journals yeah but uh, you know but it's it's like you know you they i, I don't know if in pre-warp when they're getting close mm -hmm. if somebody from the federation kind of was like um excuse me <laughs> you know 
can we study your people so that we can help you join this benevolent organization so that you can gain protection, but also participate in this bigger society. Um, do they do that? that was, I don't know. Uh, but to me, it's like when you watch First, contract, con, first Contact, which I don't remember much of, they, that's where they started was the, some of the crew were, um, you know, had surgery to look like the people there yeah. and who are living amongst them. So I don't know if that was unbeknownst to the, everyone there or somebody, you know, gave that kind of permission. So that's where it gets a little, you know, ethically funny because they get a chance to st study, you know, this society, but mm. not reciprocal. And, and yet we're all human um, within our species. <laughs> There's some <laughs> um, and we're going to bring our biases and our own um, moral compass to any situation. There's a there's a famous case. Um, there's a famous anthropologist by the name of Colin Turnbull, and he wrote a lot of things. Um, but one of the books he wrote was um, the Forest People. I have show and tell things, and oh. he. Um, he wrote about, uh, they consider this a pejorative, awful term like the N-word, seriously, but um, he, he lived among what um, the ignorant would call the pygmies, but they're the mm -hmm. Mabuti, um, and he considered them an idealistic, um, beautiful, warm, um, welcoming people, and he absolutely loved living among them and even did some of their initiation rites like uh, being marked with what he feared was a, you know, tetanus, something teeming with tetanus and old musty <laughs> metal thing to get his, um, his bodily modification. Um, and then he um, later worked with the Ik, Ik um, of Western Africa, and they had been going through culture change, right? Their lands had been taken away. Um, they were in cultural flux and transition. Um, they were angry about it. Um, uh, sort of standard mm, or, or conventional forms of, of the niceties um, had had fled them because their basic needs weren't being met. And Turnbull wrote horribly of them, and he's he's highly criticized for this. But he he wrote it with his baggage, having lived among the forest people, where everybody is trying to help, and um, uh, you know, and, it, and it's very egalitarian to this sort of rough, murderous, seeming, seemingly murderous, I should say, um, devoid of principle, devoid of humanity type of um, culture. And here's one man describing uh, what most people are really not going to find out firsthand. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's his word. It's his word. Subsequently yeah. gone in. But um, so usually with culture, you have a culture, right? And, and you, you may be isolated uh, in, in some way, and particularly if we go back in time a little bit, um, then you're going to have the introduction of something new because cultural diffusion has always existed. Mm. Uh, you, you trade with others, you learn technology from others. Um, uh, the idea that there is cultural appropriation everywhere um, these days cracks me up because there's always been cultural yeah. appropriation um well and i think it both i think it, it does point correctly back to what you were talking about earlier with the syncretically and diachronically yeah. um it's a continuum as as the culture continues yeah. to exist it's not it's not just a a fragmented point in in, in time that, that is the picture of that culture yeah uh, yeah um 
sorry to cut you off. It was just that was one of the, one of the things that was in my head of trying to get back to it. <laughs> well, can I get you into a probably a, I, I feel really stupid because I know this is a super famous episode from Classic Trek. It's the one where they go back in time to like I don't know when it is the fifties or something. Oh, it was the in the sixties when and they, Bones yeah. is constantly yeah. like, "This is barbaric. If I only do this, she won't have diabetes." And um, oh, you know. That's the- that's that's Star the Trek Star Trek Four. It's Jenny's favorite movie. It's yeah. of, the, of the Trek series. It's one of my favorite. It's just fantastic. It's a voyage uh, home. Yeah, when they go to the eighties, they go to San Francisco in the nineteen eighties. Eighties, okay. First, yeah. I don't know why I had it. Uh, it's I okay because they do. They go back to Earth in the original series in like like nineteen sixty six or sixty seven or something like that. Yeah, uh, like they somehow get transported to Earth, you know, accidentally. Yeah, that time period and there's this whole great scene of like Spock trying to break into the Pentagon and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So <laughs> How does the prime directive work there when you're talking, all right, let's just, there's so, so much going on in that episode, but both, I'm oh, sorry, go. I oh, see. I was just going to say, there, there's also a time travel directive as well. Is there not? Or is it- temporal directive. Oh. Yep. Yep. Temporal directive. That's what it's called. Yep. It's all over Voyager. You might toward the end spoilers. But... I love Voyager. <laughs> um. Yeah. 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 <laughs> But but here, um, if we go back to the prime directive and all right, you've got time travel issues too, and they always break the rules, of course, Kirk. <laughs> um, but you have something <laughs> medical, okay? I can yeah. cure this. This right. doesn't have to be a suffering point for this. This how is that justified uh, under the prime directive, or is it more part of that living law directive that that you referred to earlier? It, well, it's interesting. Um, I think the study, the, the, if I was, okay, so let's say I was in the court martial. Jenny, you mentioned that was one of the punishments that could, that could come from breaking the prime directive. There's actually a whole range of punishment for breaking the prime directive from like formal reprimand to demotion, demotion to like court martial and arrest and criminal procedure and that sort of thing as well. Um, so let's say we're in the court martial, right? And um, Jenny broke the prime directive. Not me. And I'm and I'm representing her. I'm I'm her advocate in the court martial. So we could we could we could hammer down on the point of Earth. Let's say we we went to Earth there in the 80s, right? And McCoy cures that lady of diabetes. And maybe while he's while Jenny's there, Jenny um, cures that lady of diabetes, but also um, like somehow like drops a note on the floor that is, you know, the directions for how they can cure it across the world. Right. Right. Well, earth is a member planet of the Federation. So is it breaking the prime directive to interfere in the society that is already a member of the Federation? Cause yeah. time is, time is wibbly wobbly and ah. you know, not, not a linear thing. Okay. Or that's, not violation. That's, that's why the temporal directive is so important too like that's it's true but we're only talking about the prime directive Jenny. <laughs> I know, I'm, just saying, I'm just saying um it's a whole yeah. other show right I think it could uh, be another, we could get together again sometime and talk about that one for sure <laughs> if you want to sam sure uh, and uh yeah it would be really 
cool to dive into. But I can, yeah, only, I can only represent you in court one time here, Jenny. So don't worry about it, Jeff. We're going to slingshot around the sun and we'll be right back and we can fix it all. Fine. Got it. it. Now you're making me think of that time I had to read from the earth to the moon. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so so yeah. that's my point. Was what I, would, I would argue on that would be. Yeah. Earth is a member planet of the Federation. No, moon, the moon is a harsh mistress. Which one am I thinking of? Heinlein. Amoral Heinlein. Okay, never mind. The man who saw the Earth. Oh no, Stranger in a Strange Place, right? Not Stranger in a Strange Land. It's the one where they're they're banking on the slingshot. Is it Moon is a harsh mistress? I think it is. I don't know. Well, it's a it, common device in science fiction, I think. It is. Okay. Um, so Jenny, to to part of what you were talking about um, about the ethical part of it, right? Yeah. Um, there is so it's in the I'm sorry, it's in the novels. Okay, Jeff. Which, which I have a, this whole thing. Jenny makes fun of me for reading the Star Trek novels. Um, I'm a fan. <laughs> you, you also write fanfic, or just consume? I don't. I don't write fanfic. I just read it. Imagine how many people would would rip you know just go to the shelves for jeffrey kirk's uh <laughs> novels you know we'll say that i haven't written it yet how's that sound we'll, yeah, okay we'll put okay. the we'll put the continuum open there um is it ethical to appropriate an original author's work i think it is <laughs> um so spock in one of the in one of the novels when he first comes on board yeah. the enterprise is before even kirk was there and it goes back to Captain Pike and his command team yeah. with his original first officer, whose name was Una or number one mm -hmm. is the, is the name of the, of the officer um, asks her if she feels that the prime directive is unethical and indefensible at the same time. And she kind of encourages him to, or discourages him from continuing on that line of questioning as, okay. as a, as a Vulcan who is, whose entire bent is logical argument. She's yeah. kind of discouraging him from continuing down that line of logic. Um, That's a cruel trick because, you know, ethics <laughs> is one body and then um, law, which is basically law. law and logic is, is anything indefensible, anything. Right. Yeah. Um, Plenty of things are unethical or ethical. A lot of things are unethical. <laughs> um, so, but is every is there any one thing that is indefensible? I can think of two that I won't say, but um, but very few things are indefensible. So it's an interesting thing that you know, as a, as as he's incoming to his first big assignment on a starship, mm -hmm. um, and he becomes the first officer of that ship eventually. Yeah. Um, as, as he's like pursuing this line of logic in there. It, it's just a, it, it shows that conflict, that continual, um, that conflict, which I think goes back to that Picard quote about it being a philosophy and not a set of rules that I appreciate the most about it. Is... I, I love that idea. And it, it also brought to mind SCOTUS for some reason when you're reading that quote. Yeah. And, uh, interpreting law and you have the originalists versus those who 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 consider it a living, breathing um, document or, or, or set of um, or, or structure yep. of laws, and um, and the rigidity of the former is just not not feasible, is it? Yep. Uh, because humans are dynamic. Culture is dynamic. Yeah. And uh, but it, it, it's so 
forward thinking to have that in the series. Like, which episode was that? That was it was way early. It was super early in the series. Um, might have been might have been in the pilot. Wow. Now that I think about it, I mean, it was way back. So Did that blow people's minds. It must have. Um, it just must have blown their minds. Well, yeah. it, it talks. You know, again, this. So Star Trek was conceived not as a science fiction show but l- literally as you know as, as Gene Rodney described it was the wagon train to the stars right I have a note here <laughs> um, and science fiction probably would have treated it differently yeah I, I he- have really here different. Roddenberry was a humanist he was yep. interested in social uh, racial uh, li- race relations life the human condition um, and also, and I find this interesting, the innate goodness of humanity, the mm. innate goodness of humanity. And here, mm-hmm. or from yesterday back, uh, this culture and, and much of the world was not so much believing in the innate goodness of <laughs> humanity. Was that overly idealistic? Um, we've become pretty cynical, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, I still, I still believe it. I still believe it. Um, and it, and that's like, and you know, I this idea of, uh, you know, Star Trek and the humanism in it, like it's just that's my philosophy too. Like it worked for me. So you know, a lot of um, you know, how I try to live my life and uh, work and working with others is you know to have that respect I, I feel respect and to be able to see you know the light in light in me see the light in you right mm-hmm. um the namaste greeting mm-hmm. too it's, it's all kind of yeah the goodness is in there for everybody and it's it's bad enough that i you know when i saw when they captured saddam hussein and he's sitting in an examining room with his undershirt and his hair's a mess and i just had this like um heart-wrenching moment like you know that's somebody's grandpa you know yeah um it's a he's a person yes. yeah he's, he's done some some horrible things but in that moment it was like yes but he's he's a human and it's like if we can you know just even be able to spot that i, I believe that it's there it well is. that's why that's, oh go ahead sam sorry I, I cut you off there i, I was just going to dovetail with that um i was in living in germany at the time of Saddam Hussein's execution, which they televised Mm. there. Mm. And for all he had done, there is still something in me that forgives. Um, And I hate that often people who have that idealism or that that feeling that there's any goodness are are relegated to the Pollyanna world. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, yeah. I felt this is not what human beings should be doing. Uh, that's why I'm against the death penalty too. Um, you know, I, I, I have some problems with the, you know, <laughs> Hammurabi code should be a little bit more modified these days. Um, we, we, the, the eye for an eye um, form of justice doesn't seem very, I wanna say evolved after I told you that evolved is, is chaotic and just means something else, <laughs> but, but more progressive forward thinking and, and unifying. So, well, even if, if you say progressive and forward thinking, that carries with it. There's a manifest destiny of where we got to gotta go as a people. And I yeah. think, you know, people hold that that's different for a lot of folks. But I think Star Trek has given us an idea of what it could be. Yeah. Um, and 
like that's that's where I have to hang my hat. Um, it feels right and it feels true, and um, I don't want to believe that there isn't good in everybody. Um, I, I'm with you, sister, on that one because <laughs> I, I feel like there are only two forms of badness either you're conditioned socialized into it through a, a series of traumatic events or there's some congenital aberration that yeah and that is by no means the majority of, of humanity that's infinitesimal you know percentage um just that not about um feeling progressive or forward thinking like that that also gives you a sort of a snobbery in your um the way that you look because this is the way to the future dummies you know um, yeah there's and that so, yeah it, it, and just like i never thought about it that way before but um considering myself you know progressive liberal person um like what does it, what does that say as a label about me that mm. you know you know you got your head in the sand where it's like well no i don't actually this is how it is to me um so I think, you know, part of what, you know, going forward into 2021 is like, you know, let's stop, you know, and, and yeah. look for that good and everyone and try to, to set aside the superiority of one idea over the other um, and see where we can get, because it's just been this sort of, you know, shield against shield <laughs> for four yeah. years of, uh, yeah. and like let's let's it's time for some diplomacy even at the personal level i think well there's two I, other two other points that i had one was to go back i think you had asked earlier and i did actually want to pull this out to let you know um so when a decision was made to violate the prime directive or potentially mm -hmm. violate the prime directive even in um like should we do this right um starfleet had already at least by the point of I, I know by the point of the next generation i think i saw some instances of it in the original series as well but there was a protocol in place where all conclusions and rationale would be recorded um and justified to starfleet in both the ship's logs and if they were um, also meeting on a space station or something like that as well in the space station's log so officially logged um discussions of yeah. whether or not to break the prime directive were kept mm -hmm. on record for use later on okay. as that as that continued to grow which i i just just fascinated that um it that like like our constitution it it needed to be something where it had the flexibility to be examined um, yeah. situationally later out after the after all the dust had cleared let's let's go back let's do our after action report and let's yeah let's really kind that's, of dig in and figure out what happened here that's the kind of a flexibility and transparency you have, have to have as a i think as a person in power or a group in power like this idea that um everything that we produce as a recommendation or law is up for scrutiny um, because yeah. we think we know what the right thing to do is, but we may not have considered everything or whatnot. So, I mean, it's a it's a position to take in the leadership role too, where you, you know, like this is the way that we do things, or this is what we need to do, but yeah. um, and this is the manner in which we're going to do it. So, 
but that's a negotiable thing all the way down. It, you know, you could be wrong. And I think it's it's part of the. Um, I, I like how it is tied to the Starfleet officers. Um, like they 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 swear an oath to uphold that prime directive, mm-hmm. knowing that should they come into a situation where there's the potential of breaking it, that that whole thing is going to be examined. The, the whole set of circumstances and the decision made and or decisions made <laughs> um, during that, that, that incident are going to be recorded and looked at later on. Um, there, there's transparency to that. There is accountability and there's... Um, Accountability, Accountability. highest degree, isn't there on a planet? If particularly if you're wearing a red shirt, or um, you you might uh, you know disqualify yourself from life by breaking the prime directive rather than than um, yeah saving your skin and yeah yeah. So that was one thing, and the other was we were talking about the prime directive, and I and I it came to mind again. when we were talking earlier, Jenny, about the the structure of the Federation and, and Starfleet being not just the military arm, but also the exploration arm and the discovery arm, you know, the the guiding the the quote that starts the original series and how it was modified gently but correctly modified for the next generation to seek yeah. out new life, to explore strange new worlds. Yeah. It's not to go and conquer. Yeah. It's not to um, force into submission <laughs> any new place that we yeah. encounter and you know and take advantage of their technology and, every, and everything else it was exploration it was to seek out new worlds it was to explore to go where no one has gone before where no one has gone before yeah. um, i like that, when constant, that no constant one. reaching and learning to 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 do it not out of a necessarily a, a goal of submission but of a goal of of discovery. Do you think um, our own age of discovery, um, finding the new world, obviously there were promises of riches and gold and silver Mm. and rare spices, but if a prime directive had included do no harm (laughs) um, and don't make everybody convert to Catholicism, um, (laughs) that that would ever have worked. Um, You're also bringing with you um, a certain, you know, uh, you're going to decimate those who haven't been exposed to to all of the diseases right. that you're now used to, but right. you really don't know about them yourself either. Um, yeah, can the, can first contact ever be harmonious? Have mm-hmm. we have we had that in our own history? I, I or don't. must it be no. domination? I think that's where. Yeah. So I think that's where, when we were talking about earlier, like is warp drive the pinnacle, right? One of, so warp drive is one of the technology baselines that is, that governs, can we contact them? Yeah. But ultimately the goal of first contact is to bring a new member planet into the Federation. Okay. And well, in, in order to contain them, right? A little bit, because a little if, bit, you're, yeah. if you're a newbie in warp, technology you can make really big mistakes that have catastrophic consequences do some serious damage so so like not it's not just about inviting people in and making you know expanding the federation it's also about um hey teenager you're gonna need a licensed driver sitting next to you 
before you yeah. get your warp license, okay? And hey, uh, there's a posted speed limit here, and yeah. there's <laughs> yeah, and we have the manpower to make you do the right thing here. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's like I mean, it's for mutual benefit, right? Absolutely. It is, but yeah. but it, it's not just a kindness or an expansion thing. It's also like you don't know what you don't know yet. So let's like let's let's we'll guide you there. So one of the other and, one of the other guidelines though. Um, for joining the federation if a planet chooses they want to let's say first contact happens yeah if they choose they want to they have to have a unified central government mm-hmm. so it, it it's again it's looking at another baseline besides do they have the ability to travel at faster than yeah. light speed mm-hmm. have they been able to go through those struggles that it would take to and, and maybe the, the, we're not commenting on right now on the state of that central government but we are thinking do they have a unified central government what have they gone through as a culture to get to a point where they even have a unified central government right taking as an analogy say your average uh hunter gatherer um community yeah uh, stone age level technology egalitarian um ideals um yeah garden of eden stuff you know um living off the bounty of the land and love is the order of the day. Uh, why wouldn't you want to incorporate those individuals into your confederation? Um, why would you say, wait until they, they're at each other's throats and have reached a technological you know, <laughs> threshold benchmark? Yeah. Um, well, I would say they would need to have resolved being at each other's throats in order to, that's another one of the qualifiers there, that unified yeah. government. I don't, okay. you know, and. So centralized government is is also key. Yeah. In addition to the technological aspect, the political. So you've got a polity, you've got the technology, and then you've got the socio-cultural aspect of the thing. Mm-hmm. Basically anthropology, Star Trek. I can't believe I didn't uh, pay closer attention to this. <laughs> um, what did I wanted to say? I want to say. Um, so to me, when you described bringing other planets into the Federation, that smacks of imperialism to me. Sure does. Um, <laughs> so, um, and yet Roddenberry had this idea of almost a utopian, um, maybe, universe. I it's guess. a kinder, gentler colonialism. Okay. <laughs> so not paternalism, not Thousand imperialism, not... <laughs> Not expansionism. Well, in in the early episodes of Enterprise, and um, you can see that like sort of problem yeah. occurring because Archer really like had it with the Vulcans who were their guides. Yeah, from they they got warp capability, and the Vulcans were the ones who were you know their coaches in the Federation at that point, and there was a constant like this like you know Dad you don't understand I you know. That kind of relationship happening between Archer, who wanted to get out there and you know start exploring, and the Vulcans were like, "You're not ready." Like, yeah. who are you to say yeah. that? You know, it's interesting to to see the better, you know, the and you know Earth and how they joined the Federation because I don't think that would you know covered much and stuff before Enterprise, but maybe the books. I guess the books do cover it. Mm. All right. What's what's the first book I should read, Jeff? Uh, there's actually a book called The Prime Directive, which is pretty great. I might read that. Um, it's, I like it. It's, 
it's got some really cool discussion in it that um, the show couldn't get to. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, there's another one called, it's just called Enterprise. And to your point about imperialism, Sam, um, yeah, the Federation represented a, a utopian ideal for Roddenberry, but he had also painted in other cultures into that universe that didn't subscribe to that ideal. Um, the Romulans being one of those, which were very imperialistic. They were called the Romulan Empire and they were stylized a lot after the Roman empires, right. including having a, a Senate and having yeah. a praetor and having an emperor. <laughs> and so the Enterprise the book deals with the first voyage of the ship called the Enterprise um, with Captain Kirk's dad, George, also named after one of my family members. <laughs> um, humble brag, but- uh, Oh, that's a worthy brag. I think just brag brag, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it, it deals with these questions of, we have, they had, so no culture at that point had developed a starship like the Enterprise. And they, the captain the, who developed the ship was very idealistic, um, would be painted as, you know, a, a, um, a progressive liberal type guy who very soft hearted as well. Um, but he brought George Kirk on to be his, his second brain um, that that really focused on how do we deal with the threat that this also represents. Having a ship that could travel at that point, warp six, which was faster than any ship could possibly travel with the weapons that it also had the capability of being able to deploy would have, would have easily shown that the Federation was after imperialism um, instead of just, instead of expansion for member benefit. So it was a really interesting book. It's one, I, I, I think the author is Diane Duane and um, I, I've read it now two or three times. It is probably one of my favorite Star Trek books. So it's All just right, called I'm Enterprise. It's it. fantastic. Um, I would wholeheartedly recommend it. It's, it's really cool, so. Okay, oh. I'll read my first Star Trek. Awesome. Yeah, I, I might too. You might have convinced me on that, Seth. I'm I'm reading Wolf Hall right now because I'm obsessed with uh, the Tudors and Tudor culture. Oh, cool! From the perspective Ooh. of Thomas Cromwell, who got kind of ba- a bad rap historically, and kind of yeah. goes through how he had a, a a hard and rough childhood and how he rises through the ranks, and um, and through his eyes, how he keeps his head on his shoulders to a point. Um, <laughs> and understands a great deal more about the chicanery and, and all of the kowtowing and, and bullshit that goes on as a courtier, um, yeah. but is able to hold his tongue. Quite a bit. <laughs> and, and, and it's one of the few books I've read where he really takes apart Thomas More, who's, you know, literally sainted um, and always characterized as this humanist with, who actually wrote the book Utopia, who, um, you know, who's always this saintly character and uh and Thomas he more, Thomas more. 
<laughs> so so anyhow, that's what I'm reading. And what was I supposed to read? My father called that. He's like, you must read Lonesome Dove. He's on this loop. Like, oh, you've got to read Lonesome Dove. I love uh, Larry McMurtry. I think he's lyrically beautiful. I don't know if he's still with us. Is he? Yeah, I don't probably know. not. Um, I, I, read, I read that book. Yeah. I read Eat like Star. And that was it made me cry you knew how to he knew how to look through a woman's eyes and that's mm. a very sexist thing to say but i'm gonna say um yeah but i'm gonna read star trek next. well you read there, there, there i i'm on uh i'm on my well jenny knows this because she's known me for years now i, I calculated we've known each other for a decade jenny oh yeah at least like, great solid decade if not a little bit longer 2007 um, yeah almost, almost 15 years so 14 but um, so she knows that I have an annual schedule of reading. Um, Lord of the Rings. I'm on Lord of the Rings right now. Yep. First time or, or how? Many? Oh no no. Uh, yeah, it's annually. Probably... Oh annually, I missed that crucial yeah. word. Yes. Yeah, it's probably That's my a commitment. Wow. I think it's my twelfth reread of it. Um, I pick something up new every single time. Do, do okay. you do the whole thing similarly in the whole, all the, uh, uh, you know, peripheral? I do The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. I don't do the extended, yeah. <laughs> the extended universe. What did it say? Uh, was his son Christopher? I can't remember. Um, yeah, Christopher. And, and yeah. he posthumously had all of those things, right? That's yeah. A, yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm my annual reread. <laughs> I was, I think, um, I must have been 20 when I finally read the lord of the rings trilogy I, I had the hobbit as a kid but you don't really understand as a kid though yeah bits um and i found it so comforting to enter middle earth and yep. be in that world and just goodbye everything around me so i might i might follow that after i read my, my yeah it's, you, it's um it's been a book that i've that i've constantly gone back to um just like i said i pick something up new each time um there's some element that i then try to look for the next time <laughs> just to see if the it was of his mind is, is mind blowing um you know <laughs> Tolkien just yeah yeah it's mind blowing I, I, my dad read my dad read me the hobbit as a kid because he is hugely passionate about um the lord of the rings and all of that too and then i just like i couldn't find a handle to get in on it on it I never connected with it I never read Lord of the Rings until it was about to come out as a movie and I was in college and I was in the classical medieval studies program. And if I didn't read that book before I saw the movie, like I felt like my Fred with this group would have been like, yeah. Uh, so as a sort of peer pressure situation with a bunch of medievalists and classicists, I read it. Um, but I just, uh, I, the, I don't. I just get offended by writers who just write for the sake of what they like to hear the sound of their own voice. Like, don't get me, Bombadil is where I was lost forever. And uh, that's too bad because it's so early in the book. I know, I know, right? And so it's like if I see anything that's sort of an Elvis style in the book, I'm like, author intrusion. You want not to know you don't want to hear and think about oh he struggled like Flaubert for three weeks over that stupid word uh no you want yeah. to be sucked in just like directorial license if I'm aware of too yeah. much directorial um yeah. action yep. then I I I guess yeah. so Tolkien and I part of it too I had to make up like a history class in order to graduate and you know within five years and uh that I had been an independent like a historiography class 
yeah. uh, which is a history of historians. Uh, so, and the, you know, there was Tolkien and um, who's the Narnia guy? C.S. Lewis. C.S. Yeah. Lewis and some other guy at a time, you know, famous, I can't think of right now, the Inklings, they called themselves at Oxford, yeah. you know, they all hung out together. Yeah. And Tolkien was, you know, inventing languages and things like that because that's what he was into. And so he had the story mainly put someplace to put these languages in, and yeah. he wouldn't edit anything. Like you can, you can print it if you want, but you're getting everything. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's kind of a baller move, but um, you know, and I didn't, I don't think I knew that when I was studying him either, but it came through. Um, and it was more of a, an exercise to me. It, it looked like I was reading people, somebody's homework. I, I didn't, but I, I could never connect on, on any of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I need that. I need that because of, you know, the then going into functional requirements that I then write. Yeah. <laughs> I need to I need to balance <laughs> the the direct functional language with a little bit of uh, a little bit of colorful. Um, yeah. What, what, license yeah well. what requirements document? I, I'll require I'll a poetry. Right? from you know, uh, bodice ripping paranormal romance to the most highbrow of highbrow, you know, Michael Cunningham, <laughs> the hours, whatever. Um, so, um, but I, I like to flip flop and, um, and gosh, going back to Middle Earth and his linguistic ability and, and just that creative mind. Now I got to go back. I got to go back. This is your fault. I'm for sorry. Dinner for the next four days, five days. How long did the fr my first exposure was, I didn't know what I wanted to do after I got my useless BA. Um, and I was schlepping TVs and stuff. So I audited a mass uh, uh, graduate level class called science fiction and fantasy. And I thought, you know, I'm just- I'm That sounds great, it. yeah. Yeah, and, and the guy was really into it. His name was Bob Collins and he spearheaded a, a great, um, this was down in Florida, conference called the conference on the fantastic and they had real top level mm. folks you know ursula k Le Guin and um gosh i'm not remembering anything because it was in the <laughs> 80s but um uh but you know i got to read stanislaw lim i got to read the uh middle earth you know i got to read tolkien i got to read um heinland i got to read all of these people i probably wouldn't have picked up with because i had this sort of idea about science fiction um, until I was properly introduced to it. And then, then I took off with it and said, okay, yeah. there's something to that. Good stuff. I got to take a class on Arthurian legend and that was like the best. And the, there's a great, or great author series or something on Audible where the, this lady yeah. takes you, well, professor takes you all the way through uh, the different Arthurian legends yeah. and myths yeah. and all that stuff. Very, very good. Um, Anybody think, well, is it time for for a, a fortune cookie. All right, let's have a fortune cookie. Okay. Who wants to go first? I will go. <laughs> Treat people in your debt like family. Exploit them. <laughs> I don't feel so bad about mine. <laughs> <laughs> Treat family like your debt. Treat people in your family like debt. Or no, treat people in your debt like family, exploit them. So treat okay. people who owe money like like family, exploit them. <laughs> yeah. I like that. You it's might as well. I, I do too. I think I might already be doing 
<laughs> well, if you think about it, you lend somebody some money, and then you know if they're going to help you out a little bit, I mean, you know, you may never get that money back. So I, I read a story, Jenny, about um, George Clooney. Mm. Okay, he realized that he had a lot of money and nowhere to put it. You know, rich people <laughs> okay. problems, right? Yes. yes. Um, but he had this group of 14 friends. This has happened this year, um, like within the last few weeks. He has this group of 14 friends that he's been in regular contact with for years now. Mm-hmm. So he went to the bank and because uh, he had this realization, if I die, they're all going to get money in my will anyway. So he went yeah. to the bank and pulled out $14 million in, and then, um, and like in cash, not check or something, <laughs> yeah. and, and put it in bags, $1 million in each bag, and invited, friends, yeah, very much, <laughs> and invited his friends over one at a time to his house and gave them a bag with a million dollars in it. I so it. The, the guy that was talking about this story then said, so if you're in that friend group, and you're one of the folks that got that bag of million dollars. Like, you know that when George Clooney moves, you're going to yeah. be helping him, like, move that sofa yeah. up the <laughs> stairs that doesn't bend or that, that mattress that doesn't quite fit in the corners. Like, that's going to be you, right? You know that yeah. you're going to be that guy. <laughs> you can deny the man nothing. <laughs> George Clooney, OD Ferengi. That's all there is. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. You said you might as well just change your name to Hand Truck because you're going to be helping him move. <laughs> yeah. God. Mine is uh, anything worth doing is worth doing for money. Oh yes. As, oh, as yeah. the ultimate, per- my parents didn't teach me like like I have this belief, uh, just a, a supernatural belief that everything will work out, mm-hmm. no matter what. Uh, somehow money will rain down. I don't know where anything is going to come from. <laughs> so this is actually more of a, a learning point than a fortune cookie, or, or maybe it is prophetic, like get your ass out there and actually there is trade. You don't just have to give things away. You can actually make money. Material, a little materialism is okay. Well, you have some value that you can offer that's worth some, you know, that's market economy kind of thing i'll do it for free i'm gonna sell it to kfc by the way i think i think that's the logical place for me to sell this idea to um so you're gonna hear it here first tech trek exclusive trademark came to me came to me in a dream which way i know this is why this was meant to be it was (laughs) i i make I make a cornbread and Italian sausage stuffing, uh-huh. for, usually for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And it's, and it's cornbread, Italian sausage, onions, celery, chicken broth, a ton of sage. You know, it's just real simple. There's not, I mean, that's it. And I might put pecans in it every now and then too. Um, Fancy. Oh yeah, well, you know, fancy AF. But um, <laughs> I said, why couldn't we do like, the the ultimate inspiration for me is taco salad when it comes in the edible tortilla let's make a stuffing bowl that you can then put your thanksgiving leftovers into 
Wow. So the outside shell is stuffing, and you can just like a stuffing So I'm selling the idea to KFC. Well, I think you can be wealthy man. Yeah. Make sure you get a good crunch on it. Oh yeah, you got to get a crust. Yeah, you got to get good. Nobody wants a soggy bottom. No, no, especially with stuffing. No, you don't want a soggy bottom. No. So it's going to be a hard stuffing shell that you then fill with your ingredients in there. So edible stuffing bowl feast. <laughs> and I love to Go cook. For it, man. I'm gonna cook for money. <laughs> yeah, start making some money on that. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. I knew you would. Mine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, here's here's mine. Okay. A wife is a luxury. A smart accountant is a necessity. <laughs> you think about this. <laughs> a wife is a luxury. A wife. Smart. A wife smart. is a luxury. A smart accountant is a necessity. Wow, that's that. That's that whole I don't like, even know essentialism what argument. A wife is a luxury. It, you are not entitled to a wife, right? Mm. Yeah, I know. Right. It took me a long time before I found one. The I learning wrote a song about is, is really <laughs> the long one, but um, certainly it is a luxury to get one. But a smart accountant. I would is a like necessity. <laughs> yeah, me too. So quark. Smart accountant. I can see. I can see the quark. Definitely subscribing to this from Deep Space Nine. Yeah, um, well, he's running that bar right out there in the in the wilderness <laughs> <laughs> at the dead mall. Yeah. <laughs> the dead mall, in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> out by the wormhole. Um, yeah, but he's making money. Like you know, he's making money on that thing. Oh yeah. Well, and that's the thing too. Like Ferengi culture, like women are. You know, they don't work clothes. They don't work you clothes. Know, They're not allowed to make money, right? They're not allowed to work. I don't think so. So that is a luxury then in that culture. Okay. They're not contributing to the wealth. Yeah. That's sort of like another anthropological con uh, connection. <laughs> um, polygyny. Um, polygamy generally, but polygyny specifically, um, and particularly in Islam, you have to be able to afford the number of wives and keep them all um, at the same level of comfort and affluence, uh, uh, generally. Um, yeah. So it is a luxury. You have to be able to afford them. You can't just as your average, uh, you know, middle or lower class uh, in terms of earning person go out and say, I would like four wives for these prurient reasons. Um, uh, <laughs> no, you better be yeah. able to afford it. It's a luxury. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. In order to get to luxury, you need a good accountant. I mean, it's just yeah, you know, you can't, one. It's like getting yeah, a wife. The chicken before the egg kind of thing. You, yeah. you have to have a, you have to have a smart accountant before you can afford to have a wife. And me, she's going to say no if you, if you can't afford it. So right. Yeah. It's a luxury good. And boy, I'm now referring to my own sex as chattel. But <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's for you culture thing. You know, that's yep. thing. Yep. Uh, but, wow. Yeah. Huh. I learned something from them, though. From the well, I I uh, I learned something from Grandpa Klingon. Mm. Um, I we were talking about um, what would he what would he tell someone right now with it being New Year's and everything. Mm -hmm. um, we had you know our traditional blood pudding for Christmas and that kind of thing. But okay, good. <laughs> what would what would we do for? You brought for... glory to your family. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 
what would we what would he tell someone in Klingon culture, you know, for the new year? And it was actually interesting. It was it was different than what I had thought. Are you um, gonna stay in the Klingon? I'm gonna I'm gonna stay in Klingon first. Um, okay. which, forgive my pronunciation ahead of time. Um, it is my tlil tu rach evil in t d. Yeah. There's like a in a there. Okay. It's hard to pronounce. It's pretty long. Yeah. Translated to may you find peace and fortune in the new year. Lovely. Oh, that's very lovely. And they only say it on on one day because it's Klingons. They don't really want to, you know, peace. Yeah, I thought it should sound very harsh and insulting and yet be this beautiful sentiment. Uh, yeah, but it's, you, you it's said just, it very nice. Just the one thing in there, the one day of the year that they actually say that kind of stuff. So it's probably after they're good and drunk, but he didn't tell me that part. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good day to drink, I guess. It yeah. is a good day to drink. Uh, Grandpa, Grandpa, <laughs> Grandpa Klingon has his has his little little fortunes that he gives us too. So, well, I'm uh, happy to pick that fortune up and take it back out into the world. Yeah. Uh, same here. Same here. Yeah. That's a beautiful sentiment. And just really, really glad that you had the time to spend with us, Sam. That was a great conversation. Could probably oh, have talked so forever. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'm so glad to have met Jeffrey and to, I don't know, to, to talk like this was really liberating and informative and is getting my little juices going. And, and I, I have a lot to think about now. So thank you so yeah. much for giving that to me. Oh, this was, this was absolutely a blast, Sam. Um, thanks again. I really, I echo what Jenny said. Um, this was a really great conversation and uh, we really appreciate having you on. It was, it was great to, great to get to dig into the anthropology of Star Trek um, yeah. and, and not just approach it from necessarily the tech perspective that we sometimes look at it in. So. Thanks. Yeah. I see a festival in my future um, <laughs> as soon as I close this this computer. Um, all right. I, I've, got, I've got books. I've got Middle Earth. <laughs> I've got a lot of homework. Thank you so much. Well, we'd so love to have you on again sometime, okay? Yeah. Okay. Thank Take you. Care. Happy New Year to all. Happy New Year. And don't, you know, remember that horseplay leads to sick bay. Yeah. Horseplay leads Careful. to sick bay. <laughs> got it. Got it. All right. Oh, 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 oh,